A reading from Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. Lord, would you send your spirit to fill and move through me as I seek to be an instrument in your hands to deliver your perfect holy word? And would you use your word to magnify Jesus Christ? Would you put the cross of Christ on blast this morning, so this afternoon, so as we, as we look at your word, we see Jesus on the cross, and we come to better understand what that means for us. Move us, move us, Lord, as a people, by your spirit, to hear and believe and respond with love and trust in Jesus Christ. And for those who are strangers to your grace and to your power, would you please move to bring them to Jesus. We ask all of that in his name. Amen. All right, let's jump into the word of God. Please open up to Galatians chapter 6 if you have a Bible or click to it in your device. Galatians chapter 6. This book of Galatians, it's a personal letter to a group of churches. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. So it's written personally to a group of churches, but here's how it works. When that letter is written to a group of churches, a messenger would take that letter, deliver it to those churches, and someone would read it out loud in front of the congregation. So imagine if we were to ask Curtis to come up here and read the entire book of Galatians to us. But imagine you've never heard it before. In fact, not only have you never heard it before, but he's not reading it from this Bible. He's reading it from a papyrus that was brought from miles and miles and miles away. It took months to get there. It's hand inscribed, and he's reading it to us. These words from the Apostle Paul, who was the planting pastor, the the one who planted and helped establish the church in Galatia. So we would all be sitting on the edge of our seats, like, what does he have to say to us? As Curtis read, line by line. Now imagine this, the first time this letter is read to the church, it's the world premiere of this letter, and when the reader gets down to the very end, he comes to verse 11, and he reads these words, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now I wonder what he does at that point after he says that. Does he then hold up the papyrus so that the whole congregation can look at it and say, look, look at what large letters the Apostle Paul is using to write to us. Or maybe they pass it around, hand by, by, person by person, so that each person can look and see what large letters the Apostle Paul is using to write by hand. You see, Paul, like many other people in his time, would not write letters on his own by hand. He would dictate them to a scribe or, or to a, a secretary. The, the technical term for this that, that biblical scholars use is an amanuensis. The amanuensis was the person that would listen, take dictation, write that whole letter down. Right? So if you've ever worked as a personal assistant, secretary, and you want to beef up your resume, you can say instead of personal assistant, you were an amanuensis. Mysterious, right? It sounds, sounds important. And it is important. But what Paul would do, and many other writers would do this, when they get to the end of their letter, rather than dictating all the way through to the end, they would take the the reed pen in hand, and they would sign it with their own hand. They would sign it personally in order to authenticate the letter. They're saying, Paul's saying, look, this is not a fake. This is not a forgery. This is really me. I dictated this whole thing. Here's my signature at the end to prove it. 
But Paul does something very interesting when he's completing this letter in particular. Because as he wraps up Galatians, he does more than just sign it by hand. He writes more than you usually would at the end of this letter. By hand, he writes out this whole last section. And he does it with these big letters. And, and people have argued about why this happened. Some scholars think, oh, he's writing in big letters because he had vision problems. Some people believe that the Apostle Paul, he did in fact have some kind of physical malady. Some people think it was a, it was a vision problem, it was a hand problem, so he could only write big. I doubt that really, really highly. I think that what Paul is communicating to us by writing with big letters here is urgency and excitement and passion. You see, the Apostle Paul, what, he didn't have access to a keyboard or an iPhone, so, so he's not typing in all caps, right? He doesn't have, like, he's not typing in bold letters. He doesn't have little fire emojis that he can put in there and exclamation points to say, look, this is really important. I really care about what I'm telling you right now. Listen up. But there's still lots of emotion here. We, we saw week one, which was May 18th, I think, or 12th, whatever it was, when we started this, this series, we saw that the book of Galatians is a confrontational letter. It's a passionate letter. And that goes for the very end of Galatians 2. These last few words that the Apostle Paul is sharing with us here are they're deeply, deeply important. They matter so much. They're urgent for the Galatians and they're urgent for us too. God himself wants us to listen up. God himself wants us to not miss this. Because in these last few words... The Apostle Paul is making his final effort, his last-ditch attempt to get the message of the whole epistle of Galatians across. He wants to get the, the central core message across one more time at the very end for the Galatians' sake and for our sake, and he does it powerfully. So if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you would not identify yourself as a Christian... Um, I'm very, very happy that you're here. Lots of us, we're super happy that you're here, that you took time to gather with us on a Sunday afternoon. But I want to encourage you to know that the message from God in this section of Galatians is vital for you. It, 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 it in fact, it addresses needs that you may not even realize you have. And if you are a follower of Jesus, and you would identify yourself as a Christian... This message is vital for you as well. Because after all, the, the, the letter was written to a group of Christians in Galatia. And it was preserved for us. So in these final words of this letter, God is asking you a central question. A very important question. Whether you're a believer or you're a non-believer. A Christian, non-Christian. Religious, non-religious. Here's what God is asking you. What are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? I want us to, to, to leave here today asking that question of ourselves. Now, I realize that that question may not make much sense to you right now. It may not be a very clear question. But my prayer is that it will become clear as we unpack this text and as the Holy Spirit helps us to make sense of it. So that when we leave, we'll be asking, what am I boasting in? And, and we'll have a much clearer sense of what that even means. And God willing, my prayer is that the Lord would help us to be able to answer it with clarity, with certainty. So let's jump into Galatians 6, verse 11. And um, let's just read from verse 11 down to verse 13 for now. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul and his team, as I said before, had planted, they established these churches in Galatia, this region. And, and he had done that by preaching the gospel to people in that region. And as people believed that gospel, they were grouped together, they were formed together into local churches. And this gospel message that the Apostle Paul was delivering when he first planted that church in Galatia is the same message that he preached every other place that he went around the world seeking to establish churches. 
He came telling a story. He came telling a story of creation, of the fact that God, a perfect and holy God, had created the world. Everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we can see and don't touch, all made by a holy and powerful God. And he made it all good. He made it all perfect. And part of that creation, the pinnacle of that creation, the best part of it was man and woman made perfect. To live with God, to worship him, to serve him, and to enjoy him all their days. But the man and woman that God made, they rejected their creator. They rebelled against him. And in so doing, they brought a curse upon themselves and upon all of creation. They alienated themselves from God. And they fell under judgment. And God tells them, because you sinned in this way, now you will die. And so death came into the world. And so you want a grid, you want a way to look at all the craziness that's going on in the world right now? Here's one grid you need to look through to understand what's going on naturally in places like Puerto Rico and Houston and Florida and elsewhere. What's going on societally? Shootings in Las Vegas and elsewhere. Bombings elsewhere, ongoing wars that seem to never end from year to year to year. If you want a grid to kind of understand, make sense of all of that, I can't make sense of all of it, but, but, but here's, here's one thing we need to understand if we're ever going to start making sense of it. All of this evil, all of this pain, all of this suffering points us to one fact. We are living under a curse. The world created by God that rejected God is now, even now, suffering under the weight of alienation from God and judgment from him. The world is not what it should be because of sin. That's my point. But God will not allow that to stand. The gospel tells us that God, in, in his sovereign and perfect Beautiful will had mercy. And he says, I will make things right. I will reconcile alienated sinners like us to myself. And I'll do it through Jesus Christ. And so God, this perfect creator, sends his son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lives in exactly the way that Adam and Eve should have lived but didn't. He lives in exactly the way that you and I were meant to live but haven't. And then he dies on the cross. And he tells us that his death on the cross was not for his sin but for yours and mine. He dies the death that you and I deserve to die. The death that Adam and Eve and every single human being from then on deserve to die. And God says that if you put your faith in this Jesus... In this one who died on the cross in the place of people like us, then you will be reconciled to him. Through the power of the cross, God's intention is to reconcile people like us to himself. In fact, it's to reconcile creation to himself. All things will be made right because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And one day he'll return. And when he returns to make all things right, all of us who have trusted in him will live with him forever. Worshiping him, praising him, enjoying him, just like we were meant to from the very start. That's the gospel message that the Apostle Paul preached in different ways, in all these different places, including Galatia. And at the very center of that gospel message is this. Perhaps you caught it as I went through that storyline. The only way for you or I to be reconciled to God, the only way for us to be forgiven and accepted by God, is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, if we're going to be reconciled to God... If we're going to be forgiven and accepted, the only way it's going to happen is if he gives us reconciliation. He gives us acceptance. He gives us forgiveness as a gift. That's what by grace means. And the only way for us to receive that gift 
is by believing in Jesus Christ. Throwing ourselves wholeheartedly upon him. And when we do that, God says that his perfect righteousness becomes ours. His perfect record becomes yours. And you are acceptable. You are forgiven. You are, in Bible terms, justified. Justified. It's the gospel. It's it's the message that the Apostle Paul preaches all throughout the New Testament. It's a message that we find in this Bible, if we look closely enough, from its first page to its last page. But after the Apostle Paul left the Galatian region, other people started coming in to those churches, and they started tweaking Paul's gospel. They started tweaking that message. And one of the ways they tweaked it is by saying, listen, Paul told you a lot about faith in Jesus. Yes, that's important, but faith in Jesus is really not enough for you to be accepted by God. In order to receive the gift of acceptance and forgiveness, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you need to do more than that. You also need to be circumcised. These people who were teaching this were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. And the reason they're called the Judaizers is because... They wanted everyone to basically live as if they were Jews. So if you're a Gentile, you're a non-Jewish person, you want to be forgiven of your sins? You want to be accepted by God? They would say, have faith in Jesus, yes, but also, you must be circumcised. You must be circumcised. What they were telling people is that in order to be accepted by God, you must have faith, but you also must keep this Jewish law. Hence the name Judaizers. They were also called the Circumcision Party. You could understand why they'd be called the Circumcision Party. Someone much funnier than me told me that once that the Circumcision Party is the one party that no one ever wants to get too invited to. I would agree. They were saying it's a prerequisite for salvation. Acts 15.1 tells us about people who are teaching this. Look at what it says in Acts 15.1. It says, but some men came down from Judea and, and were teaching the brothers, listen, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now here's the problem. The apostle Paul knows this. All the apostles know this. Jesus knew this. That if you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. In Paul's words, you nullify it. If you add to it, you supplement it, and you say acceptance by God requires faith, but also plus this, plus that, plus anything, you lose the whole thing. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.21, this is one of my favorite passages in Galatians He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can be accepted by God through getting circumcised or keeping any other kind of law, then guess what? Jesus died for no reason. And if I accept that lie, then I'm nullifying grace. I can't have grace plus law. I can't say... Yes, I'm accepted by grace. Jesus gifts me. He gives me acceptance, but also I need to do this thing to earn it as well, to supplement it with some willpower. You see, it's all or nothing. It's either by grace or it's not grace. It's either all a gift free of charge by faith, or you've nullified the gift altogether. Oh, Paul took this so seriously. He saw it as a life or death issue. You see why he's so urgent with this message. And you see why it's urgent for us as well. Because you and I are always tempted to seek righteousness in something other than Jesus Christ. You and I, whether we realize it or not, are always tempted, often tempted at least I should say, to do something or be something to make ourselves more acceptable to God, to make us righteous, to make us good. And and so the implicit kind of lie that we accept is that in order to be okay with God, yes, I need to believe in Christ, but I also need to do more. There needs to be a plus something that can't be enough. Verse 12 says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. 
and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul sees what their motives are, these Judaizers, this circumcision party. He says, really, they're just out to avoid persecution. They want to avoid trouble in life. Here's what he means. When you think about Christian persecution, who are Christians persecuted by in the world now and throughout history? You might think, okay, right now, uh, Christians are persecuted in some places by, um, by secular states. Sometimes they're persecuted by um, Muslim groups. Sometimes they're persecuted by others. What we lose sight of is this. Although the Roman Empire persecuted Christians, really the first wave of persecution, the first wave of torture and murder that Christians experienced wasn't from the Roman Empire. It was from Jewish people. And you can read about it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, there's a man by the name of Stephen. He's a deacon in a local church, and he's stoned to death for being a Christian, for worshiping Jesus. He wasn't stoned by the Roman Empire. He was stoned by Jews. And later on, we read of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader, and he was all about persecuting Christians. He loved doing it. He dragged them off to jail. He stripped them of their possessions. And you bring as much suffering into their lives as possible. So Jewish people who converted to Christianity faced persecution. That's the point. And so these Judaizers, they were Jewish people who had come to hear the gospel. They were, they were intrigued by Jesus. Perhaps they wanted to follow Jesus, but they also wanted to avoid all the trouble that might come with that. So one, what's one way to avoid the persecution? Here's one way. Get circumcised. Or just keep keeping the Jewish law so that you'll look as Jewish as possible, thereby avoiding some of the hate that you might get from other Jews who don't like Christians. And if, and if other Gentiles want to become Christians as well, well, the way to do that would be, be to, to, to get them circumcised too. So you could say to your Jewish friends, look, look, we're, we're Christians, they're Christians. Yeah, but look, we're, we're still Jewish, right? We're still living like Jews. We're doing all the things that you guys do. It's a way to avoid the hate, to avoid the suffering. Their real motivation was fear. And so in, 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 inadvertently or advertently, what they ended up doing is playing down the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ Maybe we lose this in 21st century America. We don't see this clearly enough. But the, cr- the cross itself was a despicable image in the first century Greco-Roman world. People didn't talk about the cross in polite conversation. The cross was an instrument of execution, but not just any old instrument of execution. It was the worst possible Even when a sentence was laid down in in Roman courts, when someone was going to be crucified, the word cross and crucifixion wasn't used. Usually a euphemism was used. They would say, this person is sentenced to hang on the unlucky tree. They're going to hang from the unlucky tree because we can't use the word cross. It's, It's too gross. You see, the cross was degrading. It was disgusting. It was despicable. It was disgraceful. Nowadays, we hang the cross on necklaces, we, we put it on the wall, we get it tattooed on our arms and stuff like that. Because to us, the cross has come to mean something glorious and something beautiful, and so it should. It's kind of the point of this passage. But we can lose sight of the fact that to the cross for first century Jewish and Gentile people was, was an awful, awful image. And so to be associated with the cross brought great shame. What's the closest thing that we have to the shame of the cross in our culture? I couldn't think of anything. I had to go back historically and think, what is the closest thing we have to the, the shame of the cross? And I think maybe it's lynching. The practice that took place for centuries in the United States or pre-United States in this very place during the slave trade era, beyond that into the Jim Crow era, into the era of segregation throughout the 60s and perhaps even more recently. An African-American man to be accused and charged of a crime without a trial, 
stripped and beaten by a mob and then strung up and, and left hanging. Like, like fruit, like strange fruit from an unlucky tree. Naked. Before an entire community. Spat at. Laughed at. Made an example of. The shame. The horror. The trauma. That something of the image, something of what the, the, the image of the cross would communicate to people in Paul's day. These Judaizers were trying to avoid the shame of the cross altogether. Play it down. Following Jesus isn't really about the cross, after all. Not really. You see, the cross is shameful. Even for us, the cross can be, the cross is shameful for us in a sense. Think about what the cross says to you. The cross says to you that you are too impotent, you are too sinful, you are too evil to save yourself. In order for you to be saved, Jesus himself, the Son of God, had to die a shameful death. You are not strong enough to save yourself. You are not good enough to earn acceptance with God. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying not only were these Judaizers motivated by fear, they were also motivated by some selfish kind of pride here as well. You see, every time they could get a Christian, um, every time they can get a Gentile to be circumcised, it was like a trophy for them. They had won over a proselyte. They had, they had won someone over. They were making a good showing for themselves. Each of these converted Gentiles who were getting circumcised were like a, a trophy. And you've got trophies in your house. Maybe your kids got trophies up on the walls. Some of our trophies are not on walls. Some of our trophies are people. You've heard of people having trophy spouses, a trophy husband, a trophy wife. I think it's more common than we might think. Maybe some of us, trophy kids. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that your kids, um, you look to them to show the world how good you are as a parent. They're so well behaved. They're such good students, or they're, they're such great athletes, or they're, they're just so hardworking, or they're just so good, or they're just so beautiful. And so as people look at them, you hope that they will see that you are good. You are hardworking. You are beautiful. Maybe it's a trophy spouse. Your spouse's accomplishments kind of count for your record. Their accomplishments become yours. Like, look at who I'm married to. Look, she wouldn't marry just anyone. Or maybe it's a trophy friend. There are relationships that you have that you, you hope that people will find out about those relationships because they reflect very well on you. That's why people name drop, right? Like, yeah, I was just having lunch with so-and-so the other day. What? Who? Oh, yeah, no big deal. Why did you mention that? That's a trophy friendship right there. You want to make a good showing through the friend. Not only were these people motivated by fear, not only were they motivated by this selfishness and pride, the Apostle Paul says they were also hypocrites, the Judaizers were. Because look at what it says here in verse 13. It says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see, the Judaizers themselves weren't even keeping all the laws that they told other people to keep. They were kind of like the Pharisees that that Jesus points out in Matthew 23. I I love the way Jesus speaks here. This is awesome. These are among some of the the hardest, kind of most cutting words that Jesus speaks in in, in the Gospels, I think. In Matthew 23, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is talking to Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders. They're not the Judaizers, they're other religious leaders. But in any case, I think the point is still very similar. It says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
You see what Jesus is saying here? These religious leaders would come up with all kinds of rules, all kinds of requirements, all kinds of laws that everyone else needed to keep, but they themselves would do very little to try and keep those laws on their own. Instead, what they wanted to do was show that their followers kept these laws. And so they would heap burdens upon people. And this is what the Judaizers were doing to the Christians in Galatia. Heaping burdens on them, saying, you need to do this. You need to do more. You need to do more if you're really going to be accepted by God. And Paul is saying, you're heaping burdens on them. You're not even lifting a finger to keep these laws yourself. Hypocrites. The Apostle Paul speaks of a a similar tendency in Romans chapter 2. Let's read this. Romans chapter 2. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you're, you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, listen, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You who boast in the law, and this goes for all of us, any of us, if our boast before God, if we're saying what makes me acceptable to you, God, is me keeping the law, this word's for us. You dishonor God because you're boasting the law on the one hand, but you're breaking the law on the other hand. He points out the hypocrisy in these Judaizers. But if, for any of us, listen, for any of us, if we want to make our relationship to God based on law-keeping, we're all going to be hypocrites. Legalism, right? The legalism, this practice of trying to earn and prove ourselves to God and make ourselves righteous by doing good things and keeping his laws and his rules. Legalism always leads to hypocrisy. It always does. Because we cannot live up to God's standard, and so we have to pretend. And, and, and we can't even live up to our own standards, Listen, here's one way I really think this plays out. Parents, if you've if you got kids, do you ever hold your kids to a standard that you yourself do not keep to? You teach your children to share, to show kindness, to show respect. You teach your children to, to have self-control, gentleness, Do you share? In all cases? Is there kindness in your words? Is there kindness in your words, even towards your children as you're telling them to be kind? Is there self-control in your life, even as you call upon your children to exercise that same self-control? You see, as parents, we often hold our children up to a standard that we ourselves do not keep to. So listen to this. When, when we make that, when we make that good behavior in our kids, when we make that good behavior the basis for righteousness and acceptance, we can't help but become hypocrites. When we say to our children, listen, you need to act a certain way in order for me to treat you a certain way. And we don't need to say that verbally. We can say it implicitly. You need to act a certain way in order for me to truly accept and love you. If we communicate that to our kids in subliminal or implicit ways or explicitly, what are we saying? We're saying the basis for relationship between us, the basis for acceptance is law-keeping. And as we do that, we're already hypocrites because we know that we have not kept the very laws that we're calling our kids to keep. If you see any of these tendencies in your own heart, Paul's got an answer for us. He's got a solution for us, and that solution is in the cross of Christ. He says in verse 14, 
but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Listen, I asked the question at the very beginning, what are you boasting in? Boasting does not mean bragging, by the way. This word for boast in the Bible, it's hard for us to translate. There's not an exact, just right word in English for it. It doesn't mean bragging. Not really. Boasting has more to do with glorying. What do you glory in? Sometimes, in in a few cases, this word is translated as rejoice. Like, what do you really rejoice in? Like, what really makes you happy? What gives you a real sense of security? Where is your self-worth, your glory found? See, the thing you glory in is the, or the thing that you, you boast in. It's the thing that you find your self-worth in. It's the thing that you're putting your confidence in, as we're going to see in a second in Philippians 3. That's the language used there. See, the thing that you boast in, think of it this way. You may not go around bragging about it, but the thing that you boast in is the thing that you want people to look at you and say, that's who he is. That's who she is. It's the thing that you point to in your life and you say, that's who I am. It's what you long for people to notice about you. What do you long for people to notice about you? Your boast is what you really want people to see in you, what you want written on your tombstone, so to speak. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3. This is a longer passage in Philippians 3, but I want us to read through it because it echoes so much of what we see in Galatians. It shines some light on some different parts of it as well. Philippians 3, verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Remember, let's stop there for a second. Remember earlier in Galatians 6, what I just, in in verse um, 15, the Apostle Paul says, uh, circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter, right? He's saying whether or not you're circumcised doesn't really matter to God. And what he's saying here in Philippians 3 is basically the same thing. He's saying, look, real circumcision, like not, like not just the law-keeping surgical procedure, not just that, but real circumcision, the thing that really marks you as a child of God The thing that really marks you as having received forgiveness and acceptance from God is this. You're a worshiper by the Spirit of God, and you glory in Christ Jesus, and you put no confidence in the flesh. That's what being a child of God really means. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look, he's saying, I've got more to boast about than most people. I have more reason to put confidence and and hope in my own accomplishments than most people do. Here's why. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm, 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 I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's like top class, top shelf. As to righteousness... Under the law, I'm blameless. I've kept the law, the ceremonial laws. But he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, all those things that I could be boasting in, Paul says, I'm not boasting in any of them. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of From God that depends on faith. The Apostle Paul had so much to boast in. But he says, I'm not boasting in any of those things. The only thing I really have to boast in is Jesus Christ. The only thing I can really put my hope in. The only thing that I can really find self-worth, find identity in. The only thing that I really want people to know about me is I'm with Jesus that when he was crucified, I was crucified with him. When he rose from the dead, that's me too. 
I'm his and he's mine. That's the only thing I want people to know when they see me. My resume doesn't matter. My degrees don't matter. My trophy wife, trophy kids, they don't matter. They're not really trophies after all. All I want is for people to look at me. This is my one boast, he says, that they would look at me and see Jesus Christ crucified for this man. Undeserving, sinner, lawbreaker, weak and helpless. But God had mercy. And Jesus died for this one. And that's why in verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, God forbid, really we could translate this way, God forbid that I would boast in anything apart from the cross of Christ. Or, or, or this way, may I never boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. You know what's, what Paul's doing here? He's praying here. This is a prayer. He's saying, Lord, don't let me ever boast in anything other than the cross of Christ. May I never, God forbid it, that I would ever boast in anything else, that I would ever find self-worth, that I would ever find hope and confidence in anything other than that. Which means that the Apostle Paul hadn't arrived. He wasn't sitting up here saying, hey, look, I don't boast in anything else. What's the matter with you guys? And he's saying this is still a struggle for him. He's crying out. He's saying, Lord, God forbid it. Keep me. This needs to be our prayer. Lord, keep us from boasting in anything, from finding hope, confidence in anything other than that shameful cross of Jesus where the king of glory was put to shame for me. So what do you boast in? What do you boast in? And I know that's a, still a kind of a hard question to, to answer. So I want to I mention a couple of ways that I think that as I've been meditating on this, ways that I think the Lord has helped me to figure out the things that I'm boasting in. I want to give them to you as well. What you boast in is where your hope will be. It's what you're really hoping in. Still, that's not, that, that's still made it not practical enough. I put it this way. What you boast in is what you want to be known for. It's what you want others to know you for. What is it that you want to be known for? Is it for your intelligence? Is it for your diligence? What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for your holiness? Be known as the the person who's more, more spiritual than others. I'm a, a man of prayer, a woman of prayer. What is it that you want to be known? I'm, I'm the reformed guy. I'm the, or I'm the, I'm the guy who, who really, really takes theology seriously. I'm that guy. That's what I want to be known for. What do you want to be known for? May very well be that that's the thing that you're boasting in. And that can look different in, in different contexts. Maybe there's something you want to be known for amongst Christians, but there's something else you want to be known for in the workplace. You're boasting a couple of different things in different contexts. Here, maybe this is a little more practical. What you boast in is what you will talk about often. Uh, My wife and I were just, uh, we walked into... Uh, a little corner store recently in a town, a city I'd never been in, to get some milk for my baby. And we walked in there, and um, the, it was an organic grocery store. Everything was, was really pretty and overpriced and, and very healthy, I think. But we're looking around, I'm just looking for some milk, and everything was, was um, yeah, it was all organic. So in any case, the, the, um, which is great, you know, it's wonderful. I'm not judging. But in any case, the guy behind the counter starts talking to us, and um, he tells us, he sees our little baby and says, oh, I've got babies too, I've got kids. And he immediately starts telling us about how his kids, um, they, they don't eat candy, they don't eat any processed food. They, um, one of them just had a birthday instead of cake. He made some salmon and put, a, uh, put a, a candle in the middle. And he's like, my kids love it. 
If you gave them candy, they'd throw it back in your face. He's like, they love this stuff. I'm like, all right. And he just kept going on and on about it, about the decisions they made. So, and it didn't just end with like eating healthy. He says, you know, we've never taken our kids into a Target. And I was like, oh, that's random. I didn't ask you about that, but okay. He's like, he's like we don't want them being marketed to by all these people. I'm like, oh, yeah, makes sense, okay. Our kids kind of like going to Target, actually. But in any case, we walk out of this store, and Delimar and I and, 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 and Daniela, we're walking up the street, and I told Delimar, I said, I feel like I've just been witnessed to. Like, like, I feel like this guy was an evangelist. And he was just like evangelizing me. And I almost got converted. I was almost like, I think we should dedicate our lives to this. Like, no more Target, no more like, you know what I mean? And, and I don't want to judge this, but I don't know. He may be, ver- it, it just may be that that's what was on his mind at that point. But it struck me as kind of like he couldn't wait to just unload all this on us. And I couldn't help but think, this guy's boasting. Not like he's bragging, or he was kind of bragging, but beyond that, it's kind of like, this is who I am. I'm the organic grocer who's never given my kids an unhealthy treat in their lives. This is who I am. Now, for many of us, maybe that's not our thing, that's not our hang-up, but it's something else that we want everyone to know about us, and we talk about it. Tell them about it. This is what I'm really into. This is what I do. What you boast in is where you'll place your expectations of others as well. When they don't live up to those expectations, you will be disappointed in them. You'll come down hard on them. And ultimately, what you boast in is what you will be very disappointed and depressed about if you don't get it or you can't maintain it. That thing that you are boasting, that you're finding your sense of self-worth, your confidence, everything in, if it's taken away from you, it's like the bottom is dropped out. Our Father wants to rescue us from that here. It could be anything. If you're, you know, for a pastor, it could be like, I want to be the best preacher. You want to be the best shepherd. You want to be the... It could be anything. Paul's saying, look, they're all empty boasts. They don't count for anything. None of them have the power to make you acceptable to God. Only Jesus and his cross have the power to make you acceptable to God. And when you're boasting in these empty things, you're, you're, not, just, you're not just doing great harm to yourself. You're dishonoring Jesus by nullifying the cross. You're dishonoring Jesus because he died for you. I want to close with a story that comes to us in Luke 10. Close with this and pray. In Luke 10, we're told about Jesus Christ and his disciples. He sends his disciples out to do missions work. He sends them out to heal and to preach the gospel. And they come back in verse 17. And it says, the 72 disciples returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I've given you all this power. They had had a wonderful day of ministry. That's a pretty awesome work day, isn't it? They go out, they're healing people left and right, casting out demons, everything's going their way. They come back super excited. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice. We might be able to say, do not boast in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven, that you have been accepted by God based on and because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was just at a conference this past weekend. There was just a couple of, I just got back yesterday. And during this conference, there was amazing teaching. There was teaching with such power. There was was praying. People prayed over me with some, like, insight and precision into things going on in my heart that were, I I was left speechless. I saw people... I believe they were healed before my eyes. Now I hear people preaching with power, praying with power, and I say, I want that. I want that. And I think it's a good thing to want that because 
Well, God tells us to pray for fruit. And the Apostle Paul says, seek and, and ask for gifts. And Paul tells Timothy, fan the flame of the gift that you've been given. Build it up. So I believe that's true. It's good. But what's the temptation in all this in my heart? Here's the temptation to want those things so badly because I want to glory in them. I want to rejoice in them and not in the cross. That's the temptation I was feeling as I was flying home last night. And so my prayer was, Lord, how do I do this? How do I seek everything you have Ask for it, pursue, and, and, and plead with you to give fruit and power and to use my ministry. How do, I, how do I pray for that? And at the same time, only boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, only desire one thing above all else, and that is to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ, bought by his blood. To have those gifts and to glory and boast only in the cross, that's where we want to be. So for you, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, it's, it's career advancement. Maybe it's your kids turning out a certain way. Maybe it's healing. It could be a number of things, and those are all good things. Pursue them, pray for them. Let's pray for them together. And yet, here's where we want to be. We want to be praying for and asking for all those things, and yet, at the same time, only glory, only boast, only truly rejoice fundamentally in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if we do that, the promise that comes to us from Galatians is that that's where there really is peace and mercy and grace. Peace and mercy and grace are not for those who, who work hard to prove themselves. Peace and mercy and grace are there for those who will glory in the cross. I was struck by the fact that we were singing earlier of the cross and many of these songs and I was reminded that, Jenny, as you were talking to us, I was reminded that in eternity we will stand before Jesus and even there, what will we sing? We will sing of the lamb who was slain. Slain where? On the cross. Even in eternity, throughout ages upon ages and upon ages, we'll continue to sing to the lamb who died on the cross for us. We will glory there in the cross. Let's glory in the cross now. Exclusively. Exclusively. Let's pray. Lord, keep the cross first and foremost before our eyes. You know our tendencies. You know our temptations. Spirit, we need you to lead us because we trust that as we keep in step with you, you are all about magnifying Jesus. You are all about pointing to Jesus. You are about making him beautiful and big. And so if we keep in step with you, then we will continue to magnify him, glory in him, rejoice in him. Would you do that for us? In Jesus' name, amen.